Satisfy morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. You are indeed a God who is compassionate and merciful and steadfast in your loving kindness. We recognize this morning that all good gifts come from your hand, and so we gather in large part to give you praise and thanks. We confess to you that our hearts long to be Lord and control the world by our ill-advised and false reign. We ask that you would give us a heart and minds of repentance today. Your grace alone allows us to worship you as you deserve. Please let your cooperating grace motivate us in that worship today. This morning, we have much to be thankful for as a congregation. We rejoice that our brother and sister John and Jessica and their kids are able to fellowship with us once again. Thank you for proving so faithful to them in the midst of some really difficult trials. Thank you for providing for them in so many ways, and thank you for giving us a picture of your steadfast love through them. Please continue to provide for them and grant them endurance for the days ahead and the many new adjustments that they will be making in their daily lives. Please help us as a church support them in your spirit so that we can show them your enduring love. Thank you for the many answers, uh, many other answers to prayers for the well-being of other members in this fellowship as well. There are many prayers that you have answered in the last few weeks, Lord, and we thank you for that. We praise you for being a God who hears our laments and meets us in the midst of difficulty. Please continue to give us hearts that know your good character and trust your will as we encounter difficulty and toil. We also want to thank you this morning for the many lives sacrificially given in defense of our nation. We recognize, Lord, that one day all nations will fall away and all knees will bow before your lordship and the one nation of your holy citizens that you have formed by your grace alone. At the same time, we thank you for the freedom we find in this present nation to freely proclaim your gospel and worship without hindrance. We stand in memory of those lives this morning to recognize that they gave their lives in part so that we might be able to worship you this morning, and so we give you thanks. We also give you thanks for the reality that we are surrounded this morning by a great cloud of witnesses across time and space. We thank you for all the martyrs across church history that have given their lives in declaration that you and you alone are Lord. We especially remember this morning and grieve with our brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso as they grieve the loss of their brother, Pastor Antoine Wadrego. We pray for his family and for the other pastors as they continue forward in declaration of the gospel. We also thank you for brothers and sisters closer to home. We pray for Outward Church and Pastor Matt Porter here in Salem. We pray that the gospel would be made much of this morning in their midst by your spirit. We also pray for Canby Christian and Pastor Aaron Adam and his leaders. Please grant them wisdom and knowledge in the midst of pastoring their flock today. And lastly, Lord, we pray for ourselves this morning. We pray for our sister Deborah as she heads back to India. We pray for safe travels and that you would give her sweet time with her family and that you would bring her back safely to fellowship with us once again. We thank you for the time uh, that we have had the last few months with her, and we praise you for her as part of this congregation. We pray that you would help our minds now and our hearts be centered and focused upon your good character, your holiness, and your grace that you show us even by drawing us together to worship this morning. Help us to put aside all that is within us that is not of you, and let us receive your inspired word as clean water for thirsty souls. Help us to sit under your lordship as you exercise it now through your word, and please be with our brother Nick. Please grant him the grace he needs to rightly preach and unpack your holy word for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Go ahead and uh, take a seat. It's a joy and a privilege to be here with all of you this morning uh, as we get to, as Han said, unpack God's word, and I pray that it meets us where we're at. Uh, whatever it is that you are dealing with in life, whatever it is that you are bringing with you this morning, uh, I pray that God's word will inform you on how to think about yourself and about him as we work our way through the text this morning. Uh, we routinely gather Sunday after Sunday every morning. Sunday mornings serve a, a variety of purposes in our lives, and one of those purposes is that we are equipped and renewed for the days to come in this week that we are now beginning. So my prayer is that that is what takes place, is that we are renewed. There are probably, more than likely, two groups of people here this morning. Two groups of people who I think it's safe to say 
are well represented. And as I describe these groups of people, I would like you to ponder and see that if possibly you might fit into one of them. The first are the disconnected. Maybe it's because of life. Maybe it's their own brokenness. They have resigned to the reality that it is just easier to disconnect. Indifference is so much easier than knowledge. Much like unplugging the cord uh, 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 from the TV to the wall, they are happy to let life go by, to just disconnect. Some disconnect because engaging means more pain, hardness, and difficulty. Others, because fully engaging in life really has no pleasure. Putting in the bare minimum is all that they can afford. The other group is the insecure. This group of people really rarely feels safe. Whether it's that they're worried what someone else will notice about them and their own inadequacies, or it's something that has already been noticed. The insecure will do anything to hide who they really are. They feel as if being known by others will only lead to more shame. While they may present as strong and even friendly, deep down they know that they are inadequate. I know that at certain points in my life, I have found myself in those categories. Friend, if you find yourself in either of those today, then Psalm 6 and 7 is for you. This is where we find ourselves this morning. And in and, and Psalms 6 and 7, the Lord has a special message for you this morning, something that can renew you and give you hope, give you purpose in the days ahead. It is in these psalms that one can take confidence that God hears the cries of his people. Before we begin, I'd like to do some context work on both of these psalms, right? So Psalm 6, the first psalm that we're going to be looking at, is the first of the penitential psalms, which includes Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. There's no test, so don't worry about writing it down. But we will be dealing with more of these psalms later as we progress through this series in Psalm 32 and 38. So the penitential psalms, psalms of repentance. The author of this Psalm 6 is David. We do not know why exactly it is written. In your Bibles, you most likely have the words at the heading to the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Shimoneth, a Psalm of David. And that's it. That is what we know, that this psalm was set to stringed instruments, and a sheminef is a musical term, and no one really knows exactly what it means. It could very well have been just the, the tempo or style of play. Psalm 7, once again, we don't know a ton about. The introduction is about all that we can gather. Uh, a shigagon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Once again, there is mystery to what Psalm 7 is actually about and when it took, or not about, but when it took place and why it was written. We don't know who Cush the Benjaminite was, and we don't know what a Shigayan is. Many speculate, but none can say definitively. So those are the two Psalms that we're going to cover today and a little background on each of them. Uh, if you're a note taker, the big idea that I hope kind of consolidates and, and bridges the, the themes of these two is this. The, the title, God saves the broken and defends the righteous. God saves the broken and defends the righteous. As has been our tradition through the Psalms, let's read chapter 6 together out loud. I'll be reading from the ESV, so if you have uh, that translation, it will be easier for you to follow along. If you have a different one, feel free to read along, but your wording will be slightly be different. Just a tiny bit. All right, Psalm 6, verse 1. Let's read together. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. 
Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. All right, right away, point number one, sin's burden. We see very clearly in uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, sin's burden. Psalm 6 is a psalm of lament. As we heard last week, a lament is a way to express the pain that this world has inflicted on us. It is acknowledging the sorrow and the hardships that life itself brings. The setting of this psalm, as we see in verse 1, David is lamenting the hot condemnation of a righteous God. He is begging God not to rebuke him in his anger or discipline him in wrath. Now, because we don't know the direct context of, of this psalm and what it was written, we don't know if David is personally or has personally engaged in active sin, right? Or if he is just feeling the effects of sin and lamenting that. It could be that David wrote this psalm, he had come to a knowledge of some active sin in his life. David was not a perfect man. Uh, we know that he had many, uh, many setbacks in life. His sin plagued him. It could be very well that there is a specific sin that David is feeling the point, pointed guilt of. The other option, and I, think it's per, I personally think it's more likely, is that David is recognizing that the suffering of this life is just simply pointed and painful. In the Old Testament, when suffering took place, the, the saints in the Old Testament often attributed it to the fact that God was judging them. Right? Job's friends and wife are a great picture of this. They were sure that Job was suffering because God was judging him. But that wasn't the case. So David's, David's suffering here, his lament, could very well be just that he was enduring the hardships of life. He is perceiving it, though, as the judgment of God. And this is the, the reality that we all live in. Sin brings God's judgment. And we live in a world that is under the judgment of God. And that is why we can lament. This is the reason for lament. We recognize the brokenness that surrounds us, the brokenness that is us, and it's the very reality that each of us live with and in. Creation itself is groaning under the effects of sin and God's judgment because sin is destructive. David's cry to Yahweh is that he would be gracious. God, be gracious to me, right? Do not discipline me in wrath, or anger. It's curious, it is curious as it seems that David knows that he deserves judgment. He's not saying, I'm innocent, but he's saying, don't do it out of anger. Don't do it out of your wrath. Do not be too severe with me. Well, why would David be under God's discipline? Well, one reason could be Proverbs 3.12 and Hebrews 12.6 and 7 both remind us that God disciplines those whom he loves. So if you find yourself suffering as a Christian, as if God is judging you, remember God disciplines his children. It is out of love that you are enduring this. Not to harm them, but to cause them to turn back to their father in complete trust. Discipline is, is intended to not just cause a behavior to stop, Right? It's not as if you're being judged for something bad you're doing. 
It's caused them to return to the kind care and to trust of the Father. Right? As a, as a parent, we know this too, all too well. Discipline is, is meant to bring the child back to the safety of the parents. It might feel like God is punitively judging us or, or disciplining you. Right? No discipline for the moment feels good. It hurts. It stings. But it is purposeful. And here in Psalm 6, it appears that the purpose of God's judgment on sin is to cause David to lean more into the grace of God. Let me say that again. It, it appears that the judgment and the purpose of God's judgment on sin here in Psalm 6 is to cause David to lean more into the grace of God. Verse 2, David begs God to be gracious to him. It is in and on the grace of God that David is appealing to. Lord, be gracious to me. Give me something that I don't deserve. David's request is that his discipline would not be too severe, but it would be like, like that of a father. Other saints in the Old Testament had similar pleas of God, similar requests. Jeremiah 10, 24. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in anger, lest you bring me to nothing. God's justice is a measured consequence, a measured punishment, not the wrath, not the anger that would undo a person. God's discipline is the discipline of a father. And David, like a child pleading with his father and appealing to their, their familial relationship, asked God to be gentle with him. For a good, a good father disciplines his children, not out of anger, not out of spite, but gives them exactly what they deserve and draws them to repentance. What a, what a good reminder. What a good reminder that in, when it feels like God's weight is bearing down on us and he does not care, that we can appeal to the mercy of God. We can appeal to his fatherly, tender love. Yes, sometimes it feels like more than we can bear because even the gentle discipline of God is heavy. It is a heavy weight. And it was almost too heavy for David. Right? He is feeling it deep in his body. The, the psalm describes this. That his, his entire being is being crushed by the weight. Now, David didn't have 21st century language to maybe uh, put, <clears throat> excuse me, put behind what he's feeling but it's almost as if he is suffering from a, a psychosomatic episode, right? His, his soul is troubled. His life is as if it's in danger. He is languishing. His bones are troubled. In verse 6, he is weary from his moaning. His, his bed is flooded from tears all night long. I mean, have you ever cried yourself to sleep because of how bad life is? Has, has grief ever surrounded you? And all you know to do is cry? This is where David is at. This is what David is experiencing as he writes this psalm. He continues to say that his, his foes, his enemies, have weakened his eyes. He, he can't see straight. And because this is poetry, we have to remember that this psalm is full of imagery. So were these literal enemies or or? Uh, were they enemies, uh, or was it something else that David was describing? We know that David had enemies, right, physical enemies, that he uh, was, was pursued by. But whatever it is that, that is literally taking place, we know the feeling is of him being surrounded. We know that when we are feeling the deep effects of sin, our enemies are very present. Many times our most real enemy is the voice in our head. Right? Condemning us, accusing us as Christians, telling us lies that are untrue. Our flesh is a strong foe that would undermine our very ability to depend on God. Whether it's our own guilt or shame put on us by others, we live in a sinful, broken world. And that's not even to mention that Satan himself loves to accuse Christians. Many of us know this familiar pain 
right? The pain of living in a broken world. It is as if the weight of God's judgment is bearing down on us. We feel condemned by God, shamed by others, and unable to remove ourselves from judgment. And even if you're a Christian, right, we know that at some level, we deserve it. At some level, we truly are broken and sinful. Sin is a real thing. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve disobeyed a holy, kind, and generous God, right? He gave them everything they needed, everything they had, right? They had the whole backyard, except for one thing, right? Don't touch and don't eat that one thing, but you can have everything else. Of course, they did the one thing they weren't supposed to do, right? They demanded autonomy from God. Instead of of relying on him to supply their every need with everything that he had given to them, they pursued their own wisdom and their own rule by eating of the one tree that he said not to. Day after day, our temptation is the same. To pursue our own wisdom, to question God at every turn, making ourselves the sole Lord of our lives. And in doing so, we sin. Sin then creates brokenness, and it is all under the judgment of God, and it is felt by those all around us. This is the reality of the world we live in. No matter who you are, where you are, you have participated in, contributed to, and felt the effects of brokenness of sin. This is the basis of the people of God's lament. Lord, the weight of sin is too much. It is destructive. I can feel it. In verse 5, David, as an Old Testament saint, saw that death was inevitable. Right? He, 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 he used the analogy of a graveyard. A quick walk through a graveyard tells us the same thing. Everyone dies. There's a beginning and an end. And you know that one, one, that one thing that pervades every graveyard? Silence. Nothing. The psalmist's logic is, if I die, who, who will give you praise? Lord, if you kill me, if you bring me to nothing, who's going to sing your praises? If death is the end, dead people don't proclaim the goodness of God. And death appeared inevitable to David. We begin to see hope, though, in this psalm in David's appeal. He appeals right to the character of God. He asks for grace. He asks for healing. And it is based in the steadfast love of God. Once again, this steadfast love, and we're going to see this time and time again in the Psalms, is the covenantal love of God. God in his eternal covenant, had made promises to David as part of uh, being an Israelite and part of God's people, but also as the king of Israel. And God doesn't break his covenant. David's plea is that God would honor the eternal covenant that he had made and that the judgment of God would be not harsh, but just. And in verse 3, David's question of God is, how long? How long, O Lord? And it's open-ended. You can see even in your text that there isn't an answer. How long must this go on? How long must I suffer? How long must I endure? How long until sin's judgment is satisfied? David's question reminds me of Revelation, our study in Revelation, chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Right? They ask the same question. How long until there's justice? How long until this is over? The saints in Revelation who had died through suffering here on earth, cried out, similar to David. How long until our enemies are taken care of? Christian, this can be your cry as well. 
the, the acute effects of sin will always be with us. There is no escape. The pains, the tears, the fears, the questions on our most hopeless days cry out. We can cry out and have confidence. How long, O Lord, is biblical? See, we don't have to have the answer. I don't think that we will ever come to the answer of that question. It isn't meant to give us an answer. It isn't the answer that even matters to how long. No, when we cry out to Lord and ask how long, it puts us under him. We remove ourselves as Lord of our own life and make him Lord. Because who's in the driver's seat? He is. Sin demands that we become Lord, that we control the narrative. But when we cry out, how long, O Lord? We inform our hearts that God is God and we are not. That it is his timing that is perfect and ours isn't, for he is Lord. We are making a verbal and mental assent to the reality that it is in his time and that we are going through life as he is king, and he is a good and gracious king. When we say, how long, O Lord, we are acknowledging that he is sovereign and that we are trusting him as hard and as difficult as it may be. Because trust is a difficult thing. Especially when one, one of the great paradoxes of scripture is that we find safety from, uh, that, that we find safety from judgment, we run to the judge. And that is the second point that we see today in Acts, or in Acts, in the Psalm 7, 1 through 16. So follow along with me as I read Psalm 7, 1 through 16 um, this morning. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of, my, of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with me, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and his own skull. His violence descends. So here in Psalm chapter 7, David is being slandered by a mysterious character, Cush the Benjaminite. We don't know much about this situation. Uh, there isn't a Cush the Benjaminite in Scripture as a person. We know that, David, um, that David's, the previous king to David was Saul, and he was a Benjaminite, and there were family members of Saul who did not like David. Uh, so that could be one possibility that is taking place here, or it could have been another name for Saul himself. But we really don't know. What is clear is that David is responding to slander. He is responding to slander. Chapter 7 follows the theme of chapter 1 of Psalms. Uh, in chapter 1, we saw highlighted the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, here in Psalm 7, we see more of that fleshed out, what righteousness and wickedness look like. So while he proclaims his innocence, while David proclaims his innocence, the enemy continues to talk evil about him. 
And it is clear from this psalm that safety for the righteous is found in God. These enemies are like lions in verse 2. They are ready to devour their prey and tear his soul apart, rending it in pieces. The worst thing that can happen to the psalmist isn't physical death. Instead, it's the undoing of his soul. The nephesh in Hebrew is the inner man, the, the seat of who he is, the seat of the emotions. And if you would have had people spread falseness about you, you know how deeply soul-rendering that can be. It cuts to the very core of who you are. It can undo you. It can make you very insecure. Throughout the psalm, David proclaims his innocence uh, and calls for justice. And because of his righteousness, he even puts himself in a position of being willing to let God examine him in, three, in verses 3 through 5. Right? It, it, these verses give us a little insight as well into what the rumors may have been. David says, if I have done this, right, and lists a whole bunch of reasons, right, essentially returning evil for good as one of the offenses, he is willing to be examined by God. Is this truly who I am, Lord? If it is, judge me. If God finds him guilty, he's willing to accept the consequences. He is willing to admit his guilt. In Psalm 6, we saw David dealing with the crushing effects of sin, but here in chapter 7, we see what a humble, repentant person looks like, somebody who's willing to undergo the microscope examination by God. The psalmist is willing to put his life and his well-being into the hands of God because he is assured of his innocence. And it is, once again, the character of God that David is resting in. God protects and defends the innocent. He knows this. David knows that the character of God is one who defends the innocent. In verse 10, God saves the upright in heart. Well, who is it that is upright in heart? Well, to be upright in heart, one must first recognize what that is. God makes people upright in heart by breaking them first. And we saw a little bit of this in chapter 6. It is in becoming low that God lifts one up. It is a broken heart that is willing to be examined by God so that righteousness and uprightness can be attained because it is, because it is his righteousness. Verse 12 examines what it means to be truly broken and lifted up. The God is the judge and the upright in heart are those who have demonstrated hearts changed through, and we see the word, repentance. Being upright is one who has responded to God in repentance. Now, to repent simply means to do a 180 degree turn, right? You were going this way and you stop and you turn around. Where once you were headed fast after sin and your own rule of your life, you no longer are pursuing that. This is easy to think of on, on, a, on a physical level, right? Well, I'm going this direction. I'm going to do something I shouldn't do, and I'm not going to do that. Where once I was pursuing one thing, I am no longer pursuing that object or passion. But I think when we stop there, it leaves repentance incomplete. It's not just simply stopping what you were doing. No, to only stop doing something unhealthy or sinful only demonstrates worldly sorrow. The world can know what isn't good for them and turn from it. Uh, think of an invisible fence, right? Or, or a, a, a wire on the fence that sh shocks an animal to keep them back. Right? An invisible fence is something that you put around your flower garden to train your dog to stay out of the garden. Right? Don't dig up the roses. Don't go to the bathroom where I don't want to clean it out of. Uh, so that's what it's for, right? And as, as the dog learns, they begin to learn, like, oh, I'm not going to go that way. And as soon as the beeping starts, the warning's coming, they turn around. They turn around and run. This looks like repentance. It looks like turning from what I wasn't supposed to do. However, not according to Scripture. That's simple behavior modification. 
Repentance is so much more than just stopping a bad thing. It is working to fix and trusting in God to fix what has been broken, to fix you. It is working to fix what has been broken and, and is a deep-seated change of heart, a change of passion, a change of affections. It is much deeper than a simple, I'm sorry. It begins to address the problem, but repentance goes deeper, right? And I'm sorry begins to address the problem, but repentance goes deeper. It, it communicates the depth of brokenness that has taken place over a course and over, uh, over the course of time. Repentance is first and foremost to take place between us and God, right? Acts 8, 21 through 22. Um, talking here, the apostles are talking to Simon the sorcerer. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God, right? They're addressing the heart, not your actions, your heart. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. God looks at the heart of the matter, not at the action. It is the heart that needs forgiveness. It is in the heart that repentance is to take place. And then, and only then, does it play itself out in the lives of those around us. It starts in the heart, but flows out from that. The psalmist in chapter 7 identifies the righteous as those who are repentant, who have turned at a heart level from their sin. And it is they who the Lord protects from the evil attacks of the wicked. It is the repentant who are righteous. It isn't their righteousness that God sees, but their complete dependence on him through repentance that God sees. For God saves the broken. God saves them. And it is the broken who know and see their complete lack of an inability to please God and they turn at a heart level from their sin. Friend, if you are here today and you consider yourself a Christian, please do not be indifferent to repentance in your life. One can call themselves a Christian but upon closer examination, repentance has never clearly been visible in their life. If there is no discernible difference between you and the world, not just in the pursuits of what you're after physically, but in who you are at your core and who you know yourself to be, then cry out to God in repentance to turn at a heart level from your sin. Chapter 7 gives us some very good reasons why we should hear this warning. Why should we listen to this warning? The judgment of God is on those who are unrighteous. Those who are not pursuing re repentance and wholeness with God are under God's judgment. It is God, then, that is the true righteous judge, in verse 11, who sees everyone's heart. He sees everyone's heart. God's bow is readied. His instruments of justice are a sword and a bow with flaming arrows. The wicked will be targets of God's justice. What characterizes the wicked? They are contrasted with the repentant. Right? We have a compare and contrast here taking place in Psalm 7. Look at the beginning of verse 14. You can see it. They are evil. They are, are pregnant with mischief. Literally, they are filled up and, and produce sin and trouble. I appreciate having Psalm 6 fresh in our minds as we contemplate this. In chapter 6, we saw the destruction that sin causes in our lives, and this is what God is against, right? Chapter 7, this is the, the effects that, or the people who are participating in that, they give birth to it. It's something that they produce, sin and trouble in the lives of others. If you hate the effects of sin in your life, in the lives of those around you, and it's something that we have to hate, then God's judgment should be welcomed because it is vindicating. He is opposed to those who would bring trouble, the trouble of sin to the lives of those around them. Right? If we want to be merciful people, 
we ought to hate the effects of sin and call for God's judgment on it because it ruins lives and our own life. A wicked man believes that he has the corner of the mischief scene, as we see. Right? He's digging a hole, the psalmist says. But he digs a hole and he falls in it. He causes his own trouble. Instead of hurting others, he's the victim of his own sin. It is on his head that judgment falls. Friends, hear me when I say that the path of genuine repentance is hard. It is not easy. But the end of it brings peace. The end of repentance is peace. The trouble and mischief that the wicked engage in ruins them. That is their end. One does not need to look far to see the ruin that the wicked bring on themselves, right? Sure, for some time, a person might be able to escape. Might be able to escape getting caught. But eventually, sin finds you out. I mean, even as a youth, I would engage in all sorts of unwise, foolish, sinful trouble. While I did not get caught for much of it, the damage that sin brought, not just physically, but spiritually, is irreplaceable. So repentance brings fruit, the fruit of righteousness. Sin brings death. Instead of repentance early on, my life was filled with a hard heart of selfishness. Destruction was present and its effects can still be felt today. The life of the righteous, though, is characterized and saved through turning from sin. In chapter 7, we see that the righteous who are saved by God are declared innocent in the face of the enemy. Both Psalm chapter 6 and chapter 7 end with a clear solution to the problem. A clear solution to the problems that the psalmist faces Let's look at these now with the third and final point. There is a sympathetic Savior. I'm going to read from chapter 6, verses 8 through 10, and then we're going to read verse 17 out of chapter 7. All right, verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. And then turn to verse 17 of chapter 7. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. In both Psalms, David boldly declares that it is God who hears. It is God who accepts, and it is God who will save according to his righteousness. David reminds us that that while the weight of judgment feels unbearable, and our accusers are all around us, they will be the ones who are ashamed. They will be the ones who are turned back. For David, he had many enemies, right? He was the king of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, He was hated by countrymen and foreigners alike. And the previous king before David, Saul, had family members who would taunt him and spread lies about him. He was often surrounded by people who disliked him. Now for us, I'm no king, uh, and so my enemies look a little bit different. But my enemies aren't the people in the world. No. David's enemies were only a picture of our greatest enemy. Our greatest enemies, the enemies that we fight against, that we struggle against, that we war against daily, are that of sin and death. Sin and death look to conquer us continually. It is sin and death that surround us. They, they bear down on us. They accuse us. They slander us. They wreak havoc in our lives. Sin and death destroy us day after day. Indeed, God did act on behalf of David. 
God was faithful. David's faith was not in vain. And, David, and God not only acted on behalf of David, but on our behalf as well. For generations after David, Jesus Christ was born. And Jesus was the son of David, the heir to the eternal throne. He endured death's crushing weight, literally. He suffered great agony under God's judgment, an agony that not even David could have known. He was slandered by countless enemies. But in his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus conquered sin and death forever. And in rising from the grave, our greatest enemies were dealt a final blow. They have been defeated. Death would no longer reign. It's no longer king. No longer are graveyards the final story where silence rules. There is life after death. The world does not have the final word. When Jesus rose from the grave, his, his enemies were put, put to shame. They, they were turned back. They were defeated. They were put in their place. Jesus' victory can be our victory. Jesus' righteousness can be our righteousness. When we cry out to God for help and in repentance, we do so trusting in the victory of Christ on the cross. When we cry out, how long, O Lord? We cry out knowing that it's already been won. We're just waiting for that day that suffering can finally and ultimately end. That my sin will be completely dealt with and I won't have to wrestle with it anymore. That my flesh will go away and I'll be given a body that completely glorifies God for eternity. When we cry out to God, we do so waiting on him, knowing that he has already won. While David viewed himself as righteous, right, that was kind of the view that he had of himself, we can be fully cleansed of our sin and put into right standing with God. In Christ, we also see that God answers our cries of lament. It can be difficult Right In the cycle and circle of life to make sense of all that we encounter here, the hardships, the agony, the pain. But look at verse 9 of chapter 6. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord has heard my plea. David took confidence that God had heard him. The psalmist is sure that God will hear his prayers. And, and, and through Christ he did. Look at Mark 14, 32 through 34. And they took and they went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Doesn't that sound like David? David in Psalm 6, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane under the crushing weight of what was to come of sin. Jesus' prayer that night was, remove this cup from me, but not my will, Lord, do yours. And it is under this great burden of sin that Jesus asks that God would intervene. That God would intervene. So if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you have a Savior who not only listens to you, but knows how you feel a Savior who knows well the burden of this life, the burden of sin. For he was crushed under the weight of not his sin, but others. He was crushed under the weight of your sin and mine. Because we went astray, he took our sin. So when Satan accuses us of our own sins, we can take confidence in a, a sympathetic high priest, but we can also know that in Christ, we have a Savior who has freed us from our sin. 
we are no longer condemned because of the sin of this life, right? Sin brings with it condemnation. We feel guilt. We feel shame. We feel oppressed. Romans 8.1 assures us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? There's no condemnation for you, Christian. Yeah, we're going to feel the effects of sin. Yeah, our, our sin that Our flesh still has consequences that play out in life, but between you and God, there's no condemnation if you're in Christ. So not only is Jesus a sympathetic high high priest, a sympathetic savior, he has saved us freely from our sin and from its condemnation. When we encounter seasons and reasons for lament, we do so not with doubt that God will act, but waiting expectantly, asking, how long, O Lord, placing ourselves under him and his good rule, confident in the righteousness that we have from Christ, because he is a savior who understands what we are going through and has conquered it. We know that we have a sympathetic savior who hears our prayers And we lift our voices in praise because in spite of living in a world broken by sin, God is working out his good purposes in us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the truths that we have seen here out of Psalm 6 and 7. And Lord, we we do lament the brokenness of this world, the brokenness that is us. But we also thank you, Lord, for bringing wholeness through uh, the person and through your son, Jesus Christ. And as we come to communion even now this morning, I pray that we would be reminded that his body was broken and that his blood was shed so that we could live with you. Amen.